Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Matthew Miller, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Rabbi Jeremy Kagan about his new book, Intellect and the Exodus, Authentic Emunah for a Complex Age, published by Magid in 2018. In Intellect and the Exodus, Rabbi Jeremy Kagan traces the history of our experience of Emunah, faith, building on the perspective it provides to gain powerful insights into the nature of Emunah in the modern world. He then shows how the story of the Exodus is structured to foster a perception of reality in us, out of which an awareness of God emerges naturally. That perceptual component, however, must be complemented with an inner sense of God that has a genuine basis. That basis is to be sought in the depths of the self. Rabbi Kagan, welcome to the show. Thank you. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Um, height, weight. Oh, we decided we'd stay away from weight. Uh, so um, I, uh, I, I grew up in, in, in Hawaii. Um, I, uh, I went to Yale University as an undergraduate, originally studying math and physics, and uh, decided that the people that were studying humanities at the school were more interesting to talk to. So I switched to uh, philosophy in the middle. Uh, it didn't hurt that I spent, uh, I spent six months in Israel in between in that sort of middle period. I took some time out to uh, both uh, the, basically to travel to Israel. And uh, it was during that period of time that I was exposed to uh, Torah really for the first time, because uh, I spent the last two weeks of that six months I spent at uh, Orsamach, which was uh, very, very new, uh, uh, quite a uh, eye-opening experience for me coming out of uh, the philosophy department of Yale University in terms of seeing that there were intelligent people that were uh, religious, uh, considerably more intelligent than myself, and also better informed about the Western tradition. So that was uh, that was a, that was sort of a major turning point for me. I went back to Yale, uh, finished my uh, finished actually did finish. I almost finished the degree. I went back to Yale for another year, ended up going back to Israel for spent a year and a half in yeshiva, uh, and then finally went back to Yale for that last semester to graduate. And then after that, I. I uh, returned to Eretz Yisrael, uh, was studying Torah for a long time. Um, I've been doing some writing. I teach. I uh, work with, uh, I run one of the seminaries for post-high school students that come to Israel to study for a year in that gap year between high school and college. And I live in Yerushalayim. This book that you wrote was published by Magid, and previous books you had written were published by Feldheim. Why the switch? So I, uh, I enjoyed very much working with Feldheim, but the, uh, the Feldheim audience, I think, is uh, a little bit more specific and a little bit more restricted than the, uh, than the population that Corrin tends to reach. Uh, I think Corrin specifically targets itself, uh, I wouldn't say specifically, but certainly includes in their target audience uh, a more modern segment of the Orthodox community. Uh, my particular approach is I think more conceptual than uh, what uh, is the norm. And it really is a product of my uh, background in philosophy. Um, and my, the books specifically speak 
about, you know, it's uh, my area of interest. About to myself, or at least trying to be, uh, I've always been sort of fascinated or spent a long time being fascinated by trying to understand what it meant to make the transition from someone who was uh, very deeply embedded in the Western tradition and moving on to Torah. It's a, it's a question that fascinated me for a long time. Um, and it's one that I think I had sort of understanding that the differences between the two, uh, the interface between the two, uh, the, how to tra- how, what it means to transition from one to the other. Uh, that's, I think, uh, my particular very specific background uh, really gives me the resources to speak about that uh, uh, on a, uh, to an unusual degree. Again, my although I have a strong background in science, both from high school and beginning when I went first into college, but philosophy is really when it, where I ended up getting my degree. But the specific area that fascinated me the most and when I really studied at Yale was really sort of the Western perspectives, the Western perspectives perspective on the Western tradition. In other words, it's like in the history of arts and letters, uh, how do how does Western intellectualism understand what it's doing and how it's uh, you know what sort of represents the most recent installment in the Western tradition, which means it's really trying as much as possible to look at the Western liberal tradition as a whole, which uh, really gave me a, a, a background as I made that transition to Torah and saw how how the sages and how the Chachamim uh, view the Western tradition, sort of try to understand the the differences and uh, and the similarities, the overlap in the two, and also my own personal experience of moving from being someone who really had a strong, uh, really very much raised in that Western tradition and comfortable with it, but yet making the transition to Torah and sort of understanding that 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 whole what that was really all about. Um, although I think it's I think it's a the, the, you know, the, the, an audience that obviously resonates well with with this material are those who share my background. In other words, Bali Chuva have an intellectual background themselves, trying to understand what this tradition is really all about and how it is that, that how to view sort of where they've come from and where they've gone to and how those two go together. But obviously, I think uh, it's an important topic not just for Bali Chuva by any stretch of the imagination. It really gives a strong perspective. You know, we're so deeply enmeshed in that Western tradition. It's important for really anybody who's involved in Torah. To have some kind of understanding of what the differences are between the two, really be able to sort of make the distinction, understand what Torah is really all about, and understand also how we're influenced by that Western tradition in terms of the way that we look at Torah, both in a, in, a, in the way of giving us a different kind of perspective on Torah, but also distorting that. What it is we're trying to look out for? But I, I felt that the sort of broader, uh, more modern, uh, academic, intellectual side that current tri- that also reaches. I felt that the, this material was very, very important for that community also. So I really, I, I published this b- book with Curran specifically because I was trying to broaden the audience and specifically give them material probably different from the kind of stuff that, that, that they have access to already sort of within the uh, Curran library. That makes a lot of sense. Looking at the book as a whole and trying to understand it in its broadest sense, what is the core message of the book that you want to convey and that you want to tell people about today? Um, look, I think, I'm not sure there's one core message. I think there are a couple of things that are going on in the book. One of them is trying to understand clearly why it is that Emuna is so challenging for us, especially in the generation that we're living in. And that involves really a sensitivity to just how different the human experience is today than it was in the ancient world and understanding sort of what that change is, how it's progressed, why it makes sense that it's progressed in that way, what the implications of that progression are, 
Um, I mean, one of the things that I become increasingly interested in is understanding what we view truth to be. The Western tradition has a very specific view of that, and Torah actually has a quite different one. And if you're not sensitive to those differences and the fact that, you know, sort of what, what is the legitimacy and the basis of both of them, you're really in a very weakened position to appreciate just how strong, powerful, and important the Torah is. Uh, so one of the one of the the first half of the book really talks about this progression in terms of how uh, how human how human consciousness really changed over time, uh, understanding why that's happened and how that makes immuna challenging. So if we understand why it's hard, then it doesn't we we don't otherwise we sort of intuitively led to that immuna's hard it doesn't really fit into the way we look at the world today. It must be the moon is wrong. No, that's not really true. It, it looks doesn't fit in well because we look at the world in a very specific way now. That specific way has a lot of power to it, but there's a lot that's been lost by this particular way of looking at the world. If you don't understand that, then it puts Imuna in a very, very weak position, and one that's really not, it's a, 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 a weakness that's really not legitimate. So the first assignment is to understand uh, that difference, sort of put our own our own experience into perspective. That, that experience is very important because our assumptions about what's real and what's not real really are a consequence of the way we experience that world. So understanding there are limitations, there's a his history to the way we experience the world, uh, really give, puts us in a strong position to, uh, to sort of evaluate where we're at and, and, and how that affects the way that we look at things. That's really the first half. The second half is more about, you know, what, how does the world, how do we really look at ourselves and how do we look at the world from a perspective. I mean, the framework in that second half of the book is trying to understand how we're supposed to derive our emuna from the experience of, 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 of the Exodus. Uh, according to the Ramban, that's the basis of our emuna. The Ramban, the Rambam is a different approach, but according, certainly according to the Ramban, that's the basis of it. And the Rambam certainly is going to accept that this is a very, very important component in our whole way of looking at the world. What are we really supposed to get out of that? For us, it looks like a very strange you know, random, archaic kind of a process. I mean, I always tell my students to pick your favorite maca. I happen to like the frogs myself, which actually is a very a fascinating, uh, really fascinating, uh, uh, one of the of the, the, the second of the 10 plagues. But sort of what we're really supposed to be learning from that? How's it supposed to change the way that we sort of engage the world around us? Um, so that second half is really, uh, it, what it's really doing is trying to understand what was the structure of understanding self and reality uh, in the in the ancient world, and really the, 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 with the Torah, to a certain extent, takes as an assumption, which is actually very different from the way we engage the world today. So you, you can use the makos if you want to as a as a template for getting insight into a very very different way of understanding, engaging both self and reality. Beautiful. I think one of the places that's helpful to, to look at is the cover of the book. So there's a nice cover image, but I want to at least now focus on the actual title. So as we said, the title is The Intellect and the Exodus, and the subtitle, Authentic Emuna for Complex Age. Probably break apart a number of those different aspects. But first off, were there any other titles that you thought of, or was this the one that first came to you and you stuck with it? Um, you know, I, I, to be perfectly honest with you, uh, this is a few years ago, so I'm going to go with the. This is the first one, and it really stuck with me. <laughs> that, that that works. That, that that fits. But I mean, just in ter in terms of what we were saying, in terms of what the major theme in the book is, the title actually captures it quite nicely. 
We have the intellect, which is the way the Western world processes truth. It's really an inheritance from the Greeks. We have the exodus, which was a very different way of experiencing the world, interpreting the world, uh, recognizing the truth of the world. So the intellect and the exodus, they're really these, you almost have the intellect is almost really the West, in a certain sense, the Western tradition. The exodus is the, is the Torah tradition. Authentic Amuna for a complex age means that we, it, obviously, it's not fair to say that the intellect belongs to the West and not to Torah. The intellect is such a huge part of the Torah. But the point is, the intellect doesn't define reality for Torah. Intellect is a tool for reaching towards reality in Torah. But in the West, at this point, the intellect has become the has become the the organ of truth itself. It's a, and, it, and which, from our perspective, leads to a lot of distortions, longer discussion. But I think that in that sense, the, uh, the the title really lays out exactly what we're saying: the intellect and the exodus. You know how we need to understand both of these if we're going to achieve authentic amuna in an age where we we straddle these two worlds um, without necessarily recognizing how much we're affected and influenced uh, by that sort of that, that, that those two very different kind of realities, and certainly without recognizing what the differences are between the two and how the, living in these two worlds allow, certainly li, living in the Western world both gives us a certain power, but also puts, a little, puts some distortion in our understanding of, uh, of, of ourselves and the world as the Torah would have us understand it. Digging in a little bit more to the subtitle, it says authentic emunah, then it speaks about a complex age. You've alluded to it to some degree, but maybe we can dig in a little bit more. Is there such a thing as inauthentic emunah as opposed to authentic emunah? And then if we look a little bit more carefully, what is so complex about the world in which we live? So I would des- I would describe inauthentic emunah as an emunah that is ignorant, that, that which is not integrated, meaning it's very easy for us to have a sense of, I believe in God, and yet, if we look at the world the way we structure it and the way we understand it, that uh, acceptance or recognition of God really has nothing, does not in any way influence um, the way that we look at and understand that world. Uh, it's you know, so we we believe when the book is open and we close the book and we return to a very Western style of uh, thinking and living in the world, which really doesn't leave any legitimate place for God in our reality. So. I think it might be a little bit strong to call it illegitimate emuna, but it is certainly not integrated emuna. And uh, what that means is there's going to be a certain shallowness to it. It can't possibly impact the totality of our being if it has nothing to do with the world as we understand it and engage it. So when I talk about authentic emuna, I think the whole point of what the book is trying to do is to kind of shake things up a little bit and force people to think a little bit more along these lines and realize how easy it is to put together the world in a way that's been sort of presented to us by the Western tradition in such a way that it really doesn't leave. I mean, look, for many, 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 many centuries, the Western tradition itself was very much, you know, suffused with a certain religious element. But that religious element was really kind of a sort of a, a very uh, artificial influence over that Western tradition. Jung actually speaks about this quite a bit. but. Um, but the the Western tradition, certainly in its modern incarnation, speaking of someone who's coming from a liberal university, the liberal tradition more and more is kind of at war with the whole idea of religion as having any legitimacy whatsoever as a, mean, mean, as a means to achieve truth. 
certainly Amuna can't be the basis of any true vision of reality from a Western perspective. So, um, you know, what I'm basically what I'm saying is we are very much children of this Western world. We don't sort of recognize that and get some perspective on it. Then it means that the Amuna that we have really penetrates into us and into our world very superficially, only to a very superficial level. That's what I would call as kind of a, if you don't want to call it, uh, if it's not, it may not be illegitimate amuna, but it is certainly, it, it's, it's, a, it's a shallow amuna. That I think is fair to say. And then the complex age, what we were talking about before, is we live so much in two worlds. Really, much we live much more in the Western, most of us, and certainly the audience that I'm trying to reach with Cora, and I, I speak for myself this way also, we live much more in the Western world than we live in the Torah mindset. Uh, so trying to achieve an amuna that is genuinely integrated into us. I mean, you mentioned it in your introduction, which is if my, we can have a vision of reality, self and world in which Emuna is an intrinsic part of that whole structure, or we can live in the world where there really is no place for that Emuna and the Emuna kind of comes like, it's sort of like having this collage with it's thematically integrated and suddenly plaster on a big picture of a face a smiley face on top of it, it's there, <laughs> but it doesn't fit into the picture at all. It doesn't look like it belongs there when you look at the picture. You know, to be able to, to develop a a view, uh, a vision of the world, uh, underst- or I would say, an, or an understanding of reality, which is integral to amuna, that's ultimately the goal. And without it, your amuna is always going to be something which is. Uh, it's not really. It's not. It's 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 not really. It's not who you are. It's something you make. It's something you have, but it's not something you are. We put it that way. If we flip beyond the cover, we get we get um, some pages of 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 um, about information regarding the book, and then we have the dedication. And you dedicate the book to Rabbi Moshe Shapiro. What did you learn from Rabbi Shapiro in general, and and what did you learn specifically from him, which helped you write this book? I'm almost sort of speechless before the project of trying to explain who Ramon Shapiro was. He was uh, a towering figure in Torah. Uh, he passed away just a couple of years ago, um, but he was specifically renowned for uh, his Hashkafic insights um, and probably was I, I, arguably certainly within the Haredi community, the most influential figure in terms of understanding Torah on a deep level. I don't mean the halachic side of it, but more the Hashkafic agadic side of Torah. Um, so for someone coming to Torah from a philosophical background, Ramosh Shapiro was the natural um, person to uh, really connect to as the uh, sort of node for uh, really making you know put, putting that picture together he was a staggeringly insightful person original um and uh, he would not appreciate being described this way but let's just say for someone with a philosophical background he certainly uh gave a he he spoke very much an authentic torah language but he was very a, a philosophical perspective on torah was certainly amply available uh, from the Torah that he was describing, the, the Torah as he was as he was as he was sharing it. Um, he was certainly someone who was also extremely 
clear and focused on exactly this point that we've been talking about in terms of what my interest was, which is, I think he also, it was clear from his Torah that he felt you could not understand the Torah without understanding the limits or the challenges which uh, living in the Western world presents to, using that word again, an authentic engagement of Torah, meaning an engagement of Torah that was not superficial to the self and to the worldview, but a, a Torah that was really truly integrated. He's also very much aware of just how challenging it was to understand Torah authentically on a deep level um, as a result of the fact that we live in the Western world, which has a very, very different perspective on what is understanding all about, how is it achieved, and again, uh, very much conscious of the, of the Greek roots of that Western tradition. So, uh, you know, for someone like myself with my background, Ramush Shapiro was an essential, he, he was, he, he really, I mean, I had, uh, uh, Ravarn Feldman, who's now Rosh Shiva in, uh, in, in Neri Sral, is someone who was an early influence on me and uh, very, very much affected my connection to Torah. But uh, as I grew, uh, as I, you know, as I moved, as I, as I grew in my Torah understanding and, uh, and Rafelman moved back to America, Ramosh Shapiro became an increasingly central figure to my understanding. And really, uh, it's, uh, it would be impossible to, di- to distinguish. I mean, I think any major insight I have in Torah is always going to be something that, at the very least, the roots of the thought are emanating from the Torah of Moshe Shapiro that I learned. Uh, in terms of other influences, somebody mentioned the acknowledgement is uh, Professor Karsten Harris, who was someone who I had remarkably little contact with when I was at Yale, but he was remarkably influential on my thinking, my understanding. Um, he was the one who was really focused on this idea of understanding what is the Western tradition really all about. He's a, he's a European thinker, uh, incredibly broad, incredibly deep in terms of his knowledge of the Western tradition. And he really, at least at that point in life, what his interest was, was understanding like what is the Western tradition really all about? What, what are its limitations? Which is something which is very much a topic within the Western tradition at this point, what we call postmodernism as opposed to modernism. Um, so I really, uh, I think in, in the in sense, this uh, Professor Carson Harris very much prepared me for the transition into Torah in the sense that I was already set to think about what is Western thinking, what is Western liberal thought, really all about and what are its limitations so as when i when i really came into torah i was really in a strong position you know to understand to, to appreciate at the very least that the torah had something of immense value to to offer to me and then through the sophistication of understanding that i gained through Moshe Shapiro, i was able to understand much more clearly how does the torah take that critique that I already, was already taken from you, will take it to a whole nother level. Not that it, it, it really very much, surprisingly very much in agreement, but taking it to a whole nother level of understanding. Um, so putting those two together really, uh, you know, is that whoever's had the, has the, the blessing to actually, any per, thinking person has the blessing to actually have exposure to, uh, to geniuses that, uh, that have kind of put the whole thing, they, they really understand the world on another level. It's a whole nother, it's, a, it's really a different ball game. And uh, I was blessed to really have two in my life that, uh, in, that uh, really I gained just so much from both in terms of 
the specific insight, but also what does it really mean to understand something? What, it, what does it really mean to understand? I think, you know, coming out, I, I went to a great high school and I had some really, really amazing teachers there, but it's a whole nother order of magnitude when you have a sense for what it means to have scope, vision, depth, precision of, of a whole tradition. And I think both Carson Harris gave that to me, uh, gave me some insight or some foothold in that. And the Western tradition, and Rav Moshe Shapiro took that to a whole nother, help, allowed, helped me take it to a whole nother level in terms of my Torah understanding. In the back of the book, you have a eulogy for Rabbi Shapiro. Why did you decide to include that in this book? Well, I mean, he passed away just not long at all after the book was published. And I was, I've always been very conscious of the, the, you know, just how much my ability to really, I would say it, my exposure to Moshe Shapiro allowed me to make the transition into Torah in a very integrated way because he spoke about Torah on a level that allowed me to to sort of evolve the learning that I had, that, that I that I was taking from Yale, I, I, I wasn't discarding it. I was really evolving it to another level, and it really allowed me on an intellectual level to have what I would call much smoother transition than it might otherwise have been. It was, there was nothing jarring for me about you know moving from Yale into Torah, which is kind of a strange thing when you think about it. I mean, obviously there were certain ideas that were took some getting used to. I'm not saying there weren't any, but, um, but uh, I wasn't, I, I didn't feel like I was giving something up as I was moving into Torah as a result of Ramosha Shapiro. I was just taking things and developing them to, to another level and bringing them to another, uh, integration to a deeper part of myself. So my debt to Ramosha Shapiro is something that is beyond measure. Um, and uh, and I, I think it's fair to say any important idea that I'm communicating uh, whenever I'm speaking, if I haven't heard it from Ramosha Shapiro, the roots of that idea certainly come from him. He was also the, the, a real consciousness of the fact that there's a, there's a vision that Torah is all about, and you need to get in touch with that vision and understand each point of the Torah in the context of that vision instead of it being individual points of understanding, which means that my, the, my vision of Torah, the way I put it together, is very much a consequence of the Torah that I learned from him. That, that sounds really inspiring. Going into the content of the book itself, one of the things you talk about at the very beginning is the importance of miracles. And there's a difference between the way that one could conceive of miracles, could understand how it impacts one's faith between Nachmanides and Maimonides. There's a lot of ways to tackle this question and to think about it. In a broad sense, how do you understand the impact of miracles on developing faith? So, I mean, again, the Ramban explicitly speaks about the fact that the experience of miracles, or we, we want to say the history of experience of miracles, is actually the basis of Aramuna. He's very clear about that. Uh, he says that in a couple places, the end of Parshish Bo, he says it in his parish on the Pasuk Anochi, the first of the Ten Commandments. Um, that is a little bit problematic for us because we live. Again, this gets into the topics we were talking about before. We live in the Western world. The Western world really understands physical, material reality as the basis of existence, which means that the physical law is the, is the defining structure of reality itself, and therefore miracles are impossible. 
And uh, this is something which is deeply embedded in our thinking, our consciousness, our process of understanding our world, which really gets to the point that I was making before that it makes our access to a muna, the muna that we can achieve, something which is very, very easy to be something that even if we get there, it's something that isn't really in, in, integrated into the way that we look at the world. Um, so one of the things I talk about is sort of like what are sort of, you know, what are the kinds of things that we can do to, essentially, Nachmanides says this explicitly, says that, you know, if the world is a natural place, then miracles are not impo not possible. If we experience systemic miracles, it, that is our proof that there is a deeper layer to reality than material reality. So we live in a world where we're very, very much influenced by the white. No, material reality is the basis of everything. Um, that in itself is problematic for, 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 for a Torah Jew, but it's, uh, you'd be surprised just how much that permeates our thinking and really undermines uh, sort of the, the depth of sort of our connection to Torah and our connection to Amuna. So one of the things to talk about is sort of ways that what it is that we need to do to sort of create a fertile ground for that Amuna to arise. It's not like anyone can say something, he'll say, you know, and suddenly you'll say, oh, now that you've said this, now I suddenly believe. I can't jump up on the table and say, suddenly I believe. So the, 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 the book speaks out, out, I think, a little bit more. I don't know if we want to go into it in detail at this particular point in time, but you need preparatory work for Emuna. You need preparatory work. In other words, the Ramban says you need to get Emuna from miracles. We're at a point where we need to get a muna so that we can get a muna in miracles, so that we can get from miracles to a muna. It's uh, uh, that's uh, when you go to the Rambam. The Rambam really has quite a different approach to it, and there there are different. I speak in the beginning. I speak very much about one approach to the Rambam. Really, the end of the book is kind of really based on a different approach, really to the Rambam also, which is uh, a completely different way of uh, gaining um, gaining a muna. Uh, not based on miracles. The Rambam, the Rambam does not hold you can get you can get sufficiently compelling the the truth of God's existence and is can be can be you can achieve sufficient compelling uh, you know awareness of that from the experience of miracle. Um, that's a longer discussion. One is well worth having. So where what is the basis of a, for for a Muna in in our age? Um, we can get into that, but it's that's it's a longer discussion. The Ram doesn't do it through miracles. Really, I'll just sort of in brief, and this gives you some idea of just how deep the chasm is between the Western approach and Torah, which is uh, the Western approach at this point holds the only way you can achieve truth is by removing subjectivity. The subject has to be removed because we're looking for something called objective truth. Torah looks at exactly the opposite. The only way we can get to truth is through subjective experience, obviously you need to purify that subjective experience so that it's not random, but that you actually have act. But the reason for that is because the basis of existence is actually being, which is something we're completely oblivious to in this age. Uh, the way that Rav Shapiro once put it, and he based himself on the Ramchal when he said this, is that we've basically forgotten that we exist, which when you think about it is absolutely true, but also that's a big deal. You know, it's like, uh, you know, we're talking, the whole point of Torah's interest in existence, and existence is 
based in a Kaddish Baruch Hu. If you want to reach a Kaddish Baruch Hu, you need to engage existence itself, which is something we've kind of forgotten. We're so busy thinking about the world that we forget that we exist. And our own experience of existence is the only access that we have to that. So that, that, that in the subjective experience, which is so, which the Western world is so allergic to, the Torah actually holds that that is the only avenue of achieving any engagement of what is really true. Uh, now, when I say those words, most people are going to hear oh, subjectivity, and then just this is, uh, and this is where we get into one of the real, real difficulties that we face when we're trying to understand Torah in our day, because these words, subjectivity, the subject, all these kinds of things, the language itself is a broken language because the Western world has taught us to understand these things in a very specific way. And now when we try to talk about them in a Torah context, when we use these terms, we misunderstand the terms and we find ourselves very, very, we are sort of on the other side of the river where we want to be in terms of understanding what we're talking about. We're, 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 we're to a certain extent trapped in our language. That is something that the Western world is, is very much aware of in modern philosophy to the extent to which our language imprisons our way of looking at things. But the Torah was very aware of this also. It's actually the Zohar talks about the fact that it's actually relevant to, to, to Pesach. The, the Zohar talks about the fact that, uh, that, that Moshe Rabbeinu, when he said, how am I supposed to speak to Paro? You know, I'm an Aral Fasayim. What he was actually saying there was, according to the Zohar, is well, my language is in exile. What it means by that is the language that I would use to talk to Paro, and for that matter, talk to the Jewish people who are stuck in Egypt, the language itself is in exile. It's uh, it's party to all the nuances of understanding of the Egyptians. And how am I supposed to communicate? How am I supposed to 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 to, to say what I need to say in a way that people understand when the words I use are completely misunderstood by misunderstood by my audience? My language is in exile. We suffer from this very acutely in in our own age. And certainly, when we talk about Amuna, it's one of the places where it comes up most most profoundly and most powerfully. The book, as we alluded to before, is broken up into multiple parts. There's two main components, two main parts of the book. In the first part, one of the things you do is you break down Jewish history. In the traditional conception of Jewish history, there's different exiles that the Jewish people have gone through, and we're currently in one of those exiles, according to this understanding. What can we learn? What have we learned from these different periods, from these different exiles? So... I mean, what I'm always trying to tell, teaching my students is that the, the watchword of Torah is just like every opportunity has its challenges, every challenge has its opportunities. So every exile is a tremendous, tremendous challenge in terms to our, so the, the, when we talk about an exile, what we're interested in is the cultural exile. In other words, when we, when we, get, when we are conquered by another people, the military or political aspect is really, I wouldn't say it's irrelevant, but it's certainly minor compared to the fact that we find ourselves embedded in a culture that's foreign to us with a different way of looking at the world, different set of values, um, and maintaining authentic amuna in that context is a challenge, but through that challenge, we, all, we achieve something. Something is achieved, something is gained by overcoming that challenge. Each one of these different exiles prevented, presented a different kind of challenge to the achievement of amuna, and overcoming that, we acquire a different sort of level, a different aspect, different facet of self, different facet of relationship with the Kaddish Baruch, we acquire it. Because ultimately, coming to that challenge, each one of them is different. 
one that we find ourselves in. And so each one is sort of it's 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 uh, you know it's uh, it's you know in in the, the collective unconscious of the Jewish people we have a tremendous we have the resources of all these ages behind us. I think we 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 kind of I don't know we're taught this way we just assume that this is what happened. We see Jewish history as a as a series of failures. You know we're trying to achieve final redemption, you know the coming of the Messiah, whatever you want. We're not there because we failed, but actually, in truth, what's really going on is we uh, we have uh, limited victories, meaning we create, we succeed in creating different aspects of our relationship with the Kaddish Baruch but we don't finish off the project, and really moving into another exile focuses our attention in a more restricted zone of or facet of our of our humanity or personality in terms of how we develop our relationship with the Kaddish Baruch So the particular exile we find ourselves in now is really the most challenging of them all because the challenge of this exile is we really don't have any intuitive integral sense of connection to the park whatsoever that that begins with the greeks but it's not as intense under the greek exile as under the roman exile because in the greek exile at the very least there's a sense that there's something larger than material reality uh the present exile which really begins with rome really is materialistic in the sense that we look at material as the base of reality itself, and it's so empty of meaning and spiritual content. So give, having having any sense of reality to that spiritual content and that connection to Kaddish Baruch becomes incredibly challenging. You succeed at that, then you've really created something incredibly significant, incredibly meaningful. But it is it is an extremely challenging, extremely challenging uh, project. You know, someone who has more of a consciousness of the historical experience of the Jewish people and sort of the to our tradition in terms of what's been gained and what the insights and how that's developed over time brings a lot of resources to that challenge that if you don't have that sense for the historical experience of the Jewish people, you really, we have, we might have a certain intuitive sense for it, but we're lacking uh, a real sort of clear view of what sort of our tools are for dealing with the challenge of what he calls kind of spiritual emptiness that we, that, that faces, has faced us for the last, in this, in this last, uh, era of Jewish history. <coughs> that sense of empty is not, obviously I'm not, that's not, that's not my Kiddush. I mean, the fact that we feel empty is, uh, you know, that, that's postmodernism. In certain sense, it's modernism, Nietzsche, you know, wherever you want to go. It's not, yeah, that's not, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not the Torah's insight that we're, that we're empty. I think humanity itself is aware of its emptiness, but that emptiness makes it incredibly challenging to achieve a muna, what we really, we, what we're really required to do is actually dig more deeply into ourselves and 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 uh, transcend that emptiness and find, you know, find find substance in our own sort of inner our own uh, in ourselves to find substance in ourselves and from that be able to to be able to 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 build a muna. And there's a lot more to dig into there with both our previous discussion about miracles, about the different exiles and all that we've, we can and have learned from those experiences. I want this to be a taster so people can see that there's a lot more and then they can go and, and get the book and, and read more and learn more there. I wanted to, to close with discussing the, the second part and to dig in a little bit on the second part of the book, which we alluded to a little bit before, which looks at, at the miracles, the plagues rather, in, in Egypt and tries to understand them from different perspectives. I want to look a little bit at the perspective of understanding the connection between the plagues on the one hand and creation on the other. What is the connection that can be made there? So here's one of those areas where um, this kind of, this speaks to how profoundly different our experience of ourselves is 
relative to what existed in what we might call the ancient world or civilization when it was anchored in the Near East as opposed to when it moved to the West. Um, and the, the point over there is that really from the Torah perspective, the defining sort of what man is, we asked that question, what is man? Um, on one level, the answer would be man is a servant of God, but it turns out that from the Torah perspective, the way that man is a servant of God is man is a creator. Man is a creator, and in the creative act, man emulates God, and that is the key to his connection to God and ultimately to his service of God. Um, we don't, we're not really trained to think of ourselves exactly in that way, uh, but the point is that the act of creation is one that if you, again, we're also, we're so, we're so asleep to ourselves where we don't have any acuity whatsoever looking at the structure of this process, but we go through a very, a very specific process in a creative act, beginning from the first intuition or the first, you know, uh, the first idea that we want to create the first, that itself all the way through an understanding of what is I'm trying to create, how that's done and the process of actually doing it. This is a many multi-stage process. Each one of those stages actually is anchored in a different character trait of our humanity. Uh, again, we tend to be asleep to these details, but the details are there nonetheless. Um, and so sort of man as a creator becomes the paradigm for structuring our understanding of ourselves and our experience of the world. Um, one of the things that does is it sharpens very much our, our awareness of when we, creation and choice are synonyms, basically. You, free choice means to choose something is to create a new reality as opposed to something which is an extension of the past. So we become acutely aware of moments when we're actually making a choice, uh, which really is the time when we're most alive from the perspective of Torah. Again, something we tend to be asleep to. But the point is um, the the plagues very much speak to this structure of the creative act in the sense that you know, from a Torah perspective, the world is really broken down. I guess from a Western perspective, maybe we break the world down between the, you know, gas, liquid, solid, you know, uh, this would, I don't know, or elements according to the periodic table. I don't know exactly how we would sort of structure the different facets or layers of reality. But from a Torah perspective, each one of these phases or stages in the creative act create a different layer to the world that we live in. And each one of those layers can be engaged as a created reality, or it can be masked as a what appears to be an independently existing facet of reality. So breaking down our experience of the world in this way is really the, what I was talking about before, it's kind of the fertile ground for integrated amuna. If I would look at the world as a, understand how to, how to engage the world as a created place, then obviously the creator would be an intrinsic central part to that whole structure of reality for me. But the, so the, the play, the, the plagues, in the ancient world, man experienced himself this way and would have resonated intuitively with the message behind each one of these plagues. Ultimately, these plagues are sort of are, 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 are forcing us 
to engage these different facets of reality as created realities. Um, but again, they resonate smoothly or they resonate with my own experience of my own personality, my own human personality, if I understand myself correctly. So in a certain sense, the second half of the book gives a guide to how ancient man, ancient is the, not the right word, but at least man in the, man in the, in an earlier time of civilization, how it is that he experienced himself. Obviously we experience it a little differently than ourselves and there's much power in the way that we do it, science and technology, but there's a lot that's been lost also. Uh, a tremendous amount has been lost. The appreciation, the fact that though something has been gained by looking at the way we do as Westerners has to be balanced by an awareness of just what's been lost as a result of it. And without appreciating what's been lost, then you can't, you, you, don't, you don't even have a foothold in trying to regain a sense for Amuna because we're captivated by everything that we're able to do as a result of the fact that we look at the world the way we do. We look at this physical place, we have tremendous insight into it as a physical reality, and science and technology are direct consequences of that. But there are whole, whole dimensions of our humanity we've been completely cut off from as a result of being so focused in that very, very narrow aspect of what's real and what's not real. Um, I actually wrote a, an essay in a book that came out, I guess, last year, something called uh, Strauss and Spinoza. Maybe Strauss and Spinoza and Sinai. Really look at the title for you, whatever. It's, uh, it came, it's a collection of essays of sort of orthodox thinkers engaging the issues of the moon in the modern world. That would be a great book for you to be reviewing if you haven't done it already. But I sort of you know, lay it out really, uh, it, a lot of it's laid out in that particular essay, but we, uh, you know, we have a lot of power in the way that we look at the world, but we've lost. This is that we've lost a depth to our humanity. We've lost significance to our humanity. We've lost really the engagement of our own being. We've forgotten that we exist. It's like, that's sort of pretty important. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I, like when I ask my students, I say, when are you really alive? You don't even think of that question. Like, what is life really all about? The Torah doesn't answer that question, which is when you make a choice. Those are the moments when you are most alive, when you are a creator. You know, and it's like, if you think about it long, you realize, well, yeah, actually, there's a lot of truth to that. That, that. that actually resonates with me. It's like, but we're oblivious to it. But that, that second half of the book is trying to give a guide to, not that we're suddenly we're going to become ancient, you know, achieve that or switch over to that. But if we're aware of what else is possible, as opposed to the way that we look at it now, we become aware of the contingency of the way that we engage the world, the contingency of the way we experience self, the contingency of the way we experience the world, that very much opens us to the possibility that there are other ways of doing things, legitimate, appropriate, uh, anchored, real ways of looking at the world. And that opens us up to a whole, a whole other, all these possibilities, which allow for a more integrated sense for Amuna. We mentioned at the beginning that this book was written almost five years ago. Is there anything that you've thought about that you've considered that you wish you could have rewritten? You've changed your mind on anything? Any places where you'd want to make some updates? Everything. <laughs> one of the first uh, one of the questions any editor has working with me is, uh, I'll give them a text, they'll give it back with changes, and I go over the changes, and I want to change everything again. I mean, like, there's a certain cutoff when you have to hand the book in and it gets printed, but you know, there's no such thing. I mean, maybe for other people it is, but for me, there's no such thing as the last word. It's always, uh, the understanding is always developing. It's always evolving. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that, uh, that, you know, if I were to write the book again, the emphasis would change um, in certain areas. Uh, other things might be emphasized more. Uh, other, uh, you know, other things would be added that really aren't spoken about in the book at this point. Um, to a certain extent, that, that, that essay that I spoke about 
begins that process of transitioning some of these some of the some of these newer perspectives. But I, I like to think almost everything would be changed on one one level or another. I mean, I guess when I you whenever I go back and read my books, which is very very rare, I, I'm I'm happy with what they what's there, but I'm also always aware that. You know, there's uh, now there's there's more there's uh, the other things to add or, you know, I, I mean I'm I'm blessed at least that with each of my successive books I don't feel like I've ever thought that somebody said was wrong, I always feel that uh, uh, these ideas are things some where they talk about the difference of a rabbit and a turtle I think is the there's some people are like have many ideas and some people have one idea there there's one major theme that that, that I've always been wrestling with uh, from the time that it really it really started from from college even before I became from. Um, and my understanding of that is is always uh, evolving. It's always developing. It's another level of sophistication. And I think I don't think any of the things I said in the books. I would. I don't think I would. I don't think I would say any of them are wrong. I think they're all right. But I think uh, I, I, they can be understood more clearly uh, and uh, and more deeply. I, I appreciate that. I've read taken the book up a lot first. of your you time. Want to talk about, if, you want, if, you want to, if you want to talk about what comes after, first you got to read the book. Then we can talk about what comes after it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I've taken up a lot, of, a lot of your time. On the New Books Network, we have a closing question that we like to ask all of our interviewees. What are you working on next? Um, I don't know. Whether, I mean, this... this you know, there's already something after this book, which is that which is that article that I spoke about in Strauss and Spinoza, which is a, a book a volume that I think your readers probably would be quite interested in. Um, and that uh, the essay in there does take things to another level already from the book. Uh, there there are a number of things that I'm uh, that I'm that I'm quite interested in. Uh, something that I've been talking about recently, and I wouldn't mind speaking about, taught, writing about is uh, once you realize. What a moon is really based in, which um, I su- suggested earlier, is in a true engagement of the self and the subjective experience. Um, I think that I think that when we talk about sort of the challenges of the exile, I think the challenge, which is the next challenge, that's going to be confronting the Orthodox community, is going to be a consequence of uh, of uh, artificial intelligence. And um, you know all the things that you know robots and sort of human substitutes that we're going to have to be dealing with in the not so distant future. Uh, I think uh, as the mimic of human experience uh, becomes increasingly sophisticated, I think if you give it just a little bit of thought, you'll realize that this will present the most profound challenge to Amuna that we have ever faced. And interesting, the only way to engage it is really by what we were talking about before, which is by a true engagement of the subjective experience, which is the basis of Amuna and the depth of our humanity and our very existence. Uh, so we've been asleep to, in a lot of ways, uh, this exile makes us asleep to that. Uh, and what this exile will create is a situation where we will be forced either to recover that subjective experience, or I think, uh, I think, uh, we're going to be chased, faced with, a, regardless of we faced with a really profound challenge to our Muna, but unless what, what will be achieved by that challenge, every challenge is opportunity, that challenge is going to force us to really hone in in a very powerful way on what ultimately is our whole assignment and creation, which is Amuna, uh, which itself is, is going to be based on really recovering a sense of our own selfhood. All right. Challenge accepted. 
Okay. I really Good appreciate luck. that. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Pleasure meeting you. Pleasure talking with you. Uh, wish all of your your, your viewers a, a wonderful Pesach. And uh, thank you Amen. for taking the time. Amen. We have been talking to Rabbi Jeremy Kagan, author of The Intellect and the Exodus, Authentic Emunah for Complex Age, published by Magid in 2018. Happy reading, my friends.